everyone. Welcome to Grace Church Medina East Campus. Thanks so much for being here this uh, Sunday morning on this Memorial Day weekend. As Pastor Tony mentioned, uh, we have been in a conversation in the past four, maybe five weeks that we've been calling Patterns That Change Us. And so we're going to dive into that. We're going to dive back into that today. But before we enter into that conversation today, I just want to pause for a moment. And I'd like to take a second for us to remember, obviously it is Memorial Day weekend this weekend. So I would love for us to uh, just pause and remember those who have uh, sacrificially given their lives in the service of our freedom. And I would actually, I know Memorial Day is about those who have fallen in battle to preserve that freedom, but I also wanna extend that out a little bit and just uh, give uh, a great uh, kind of push toward Thanksgiving of those who uh, have served in the armed forces as veterans or those who are presently in the armed forces. Can we just take a second for all those folks and give them a hand and, and gratitude? It's <clears throat> awesome. Thanks so much for doing that. We are truly grateful for you. Thank you for being here today if you are in the armed forces or were a vet. Uh, it's interesting to me that uh, the subject of Memorial Day when it comes around is sort of uh, a neat little analogy or a neat illustration of the pattern that we are going to be discussing today. This pattern that Tony mentioned a few moments ago is the pattern of feasting. Uh, so I don't know about you, but uh, when I was younger, uh, I loved to celebrate Memorial Day. Memorial Day was one of my favorite holidays in the year. And sadly, that wasn't because of anything that had to do with its original motivation or purpose, right, when you were a kid. How many of you love to celebrate Memorial Day when you were a kid, but you had no idea what it was about? Yeah? Come on, be honest. Yeah, that's true. Because, man, if you were like me, which is my guess is that most of us were, if you're like me, man, you just weren't, when you celebrated Memorial Day, you just weren't thinking about just what it cost to kind of preserve your freedom and your livelihood in the present. You weren't thinking about that. Man, I know for me, and again, this is to my discredit, honestly. For me, I loved Memorial Day as a holiday simply because it was an extra day off of school. Come on, anybody, anybody, when you were younger, right? An extra day off of school. Because Memorial Day was the time when you got a chance to just kick back, relax, and you didn't have to worry about, you got that day off of school, you didn't have to worry about homework. You didn't have to worry about tests and all those other evils that you teachers put upon us as kids, right, throughout the week. And let me just tell you, I love to celebrate Memorial Day too because it was the time in a, sort of our family's calendar or our rhythm annually on this holiday, we would get together as a family. So my aunts and uncles, cousins, and all that kind of stuff, we'd get together, we'd hang out, we'd have a lot of fun, and we would just gorb. I think that's a word. Like we would gorb on burgers and hot dogs till it made us sick, right? And so we'd eat and we'd just have a good time together. And I always remember this, we would go to uh, my Uncle Pat and Aunt Patty's house every single Memorial Day, which their last name is Petty. So try saying that five times fast. Pat and Patty, Petty, Pat and Patty, Petty, right? So we'd go over to their house. I love celebrating that time with our family, but listen, my Uncle Pat and Aunt Patty, they had a pool. <laughs> oh yeah. And every Memorial Day, if the weather was nice, it would be the first moment when they would open up their pool for the summer. And I would dip in and dive and cool off and have a blast in the pool with my cousins and my relatives and all that good stuff. And here's the thing, the pool wasn't just great to go into on Memorial Day. The pool symbolized something greater, something that was coming, right? That as a kid, the pool symbolized that within two weeks, within a week or two, Man, it was summer break, 
right? And so for those reasons enough, Memorial Day was one of my favorite holidays in the year. But uh, as I grew to be a little bit older, as I started to grow up, uh, my perspective on the uh, reasons for celebrating Memorial Day shifted pretty dramatically. My perspective shifted. And this was primarily because I began to uh, unearth a little bit of the purpose behind or the motivation, the reason for Memorial Day being a holiday in the first place. And so I started to learn things that are best uh, kind of expressed here in an article, an excerpt from an article that I got from historychannel.com. Started to learn stuff like this about Memorial Day. Uh, Historychannel.com says the Civil War, which ended in the spring of 1865, claimed more lives than any conflict in U.S. history and required the establishment of the country's first national cemeteries. Did you know that? So by the late 1860s, Americans in various towns and cities had begun holding springtime tributes to these countless fallen soldiers, decorating their graves with flowers and reciting prayers. Check this out, right? So Memorial Day was not originally instituted from our government or any politicians who wanted to commemorate or celebrate the day. Memorial Day began as a grassroots movement from people who were so grateful and thankful and had experienced the tragic loss of loved ones in the preservation of their freedom. Grassroots movement. On May 5th, 1868, General John A. Logan, leader of an organization for Northern Civil War veterans, he called for a nationwide day of remembrance later that month. And this is what John Logan said. The 30th of May, 1868, is designated for the purpose of strewing with flowers or otherwise decorating the graves of comrades who died in defense of their country during the late rebellion, during that civil war, and whose bodies now lie in almost every city, every village and hamlet churchyard in the land. See, I started to learn some of these facts about the origin story, the history behind Memorial Day. Man, things radically changed for me. I began to realize that celebrating Memorial Day wasn't first and foremost about reveling in my own indulgences, but instead it was about remembering the sacrifice of other people. Now listen, every Memorial Day, since I learned some of this stuff, I still do the same thing, right? I still go over to family and friend's house. I still eat way too much food and wind up throwing up later that night, right? And, and I still, like if there's an opportunity, I'll dive in that pool with the best of them, right? And we'll have a good time. But I do so now with a greater appreciation and a greater gratitude for just what it cost to preserve my freedom in the present that I can enjoy and celebrate that, and also to secure the possibility of my freedom in the future. Now again, as I mentioned earlier, I think this serves as a great analogy, a great illustration to the pattern that we are going to be discussing today, we're gonna be talking about in this conversation, this pattern of feasting, this pattern that Jesus has given to his followers as a means to help catalyze their spiritual growth, as a means to help them look more and more like him in their lives. And as Tony mentioned earlier, this pattern of feasting is what we would call the symmetrical complement to the pattern that we looked last looked at last week, which is this pattern of fasting. But so I know for most of us, when we think about the idea of feasting and we just think of it in general, generally speaking, I think we as Americans, we believe that we know how to do this pattern really well, don't we? I mean, case in point, exhibit A is the fact that I throw up every memorial. We know how to feast. We know how to get around good food and good people and just have a party, right? But here's the thing. As it was with my experience with Memorial Day, 
I think that if we fail to go back and figure out the origin story of feasting in the Bible, the Bible's explanation for feasting and its motives and its purpose, if we fail to figure that out, man, we will miss out, I believe, on a great infusion of joy and celebration and purpose that knowing that history and where that comes from can provide to us. And so that's what we're gonna do a little bit today. We are going to talk about this idea of feasting. And I think the quickest and the easiest way to walk through this conversation to get a little bit of a better idea of the backstory of why God would want his people to feast, why Jesus gives us this pattern or this practice, the quickest and easiest way to do that is to ask three questions that will help create a roadmap. We'll be kind of like our tour guide in our conversation today about feasting. And the three questions are these. Number one, we are going to ask, why do we feast? This is a little bit more specific to the biblical origins of feasting as a practice for followers of Jesus, for God's people. So first we're gonna ask, we're gonna uncover the motivations and the purpose. We're gonna ask, why do we feast? And then we'll move, knowing maybe some of that in a little bit better way, we're gonna ask the question, when do we feast? In other words, when are the moments in our calendars and our schedules, when are the settings in life where it is most appropriate, biblically speaking, for a follower of Jesus to engage in this spiritual habit of feasting? And then finally, we're gonna look at some practical considerations. How do we feast? What are some things we need to be thinking about so that we can feast really, really well? All right, and so the way we're gonna do that is walk through these questions. We're gonna start with this first one, Why do we feast? What does the Bible say about the purpose or the nature of feasting and our motivation for doing so? Well, let me just back up a little bit. Generally speaking, if you were gonna look throughout the Bible at the different feasts that are celebrated by God's people in the scripture, you'll generally discover that three main ideas come out. They they kind of surface a little bit and they create the motivations for God's people to feast. And so these three ideas can be summarized in three short words. That number one, feasting often is a means to remember. So there's this idea of remembering. There's also number two, the idea of reminding, being reminded of something. And then number three, anticipating something that has yet to come. So remembering, reminding, and anticipating. And as you can already probably guess, this has sort of like a chronological spectrum here. So remembering is a little bit of backward looking, right? It's looking to the past and it's the people of God looking to some past act of God and his faithfulness and commemorating or remembering that act of faithfulness. That reminding, it looks at what is God doing in my life in the here and now? What is God doing in my life in the here and now? And feasting as a result of his faithfulness in the present. And then anticipating is a little bit more of that forward, future-looking thing. It's eagerly awaiting God's faithfulness in the future. So with these three ideas, let's just, let's just uh, put one statement here on the screen that I think is going to be a good guide for us as we navigate these three things. And it's this statement, that when we think about feasting, we gotta get in our brains when we go to the Bible, that feasting is a celebration of God's faithfulness. So let's stop there. It is a celebration of God making promises and coming through on those. It's a celebration of God's faithfulness, but in the lives of his people, as they, again, remember the past, as they are reminded of the present, and as they then eagerly await or anticipate the future. So past, present, 
and future. And I think we're actually gonna see each of these three aspects or these tenses, we might say, of feasting. We're gonna find all three of these in a rather uh, obscure and often overlooked passage in the book of Exodus. And this passage is Exodus 23, 14 through 16. So if you brought your Bibles here this morning, you can go ahead and make your way to Exodus 23. If you've got your Bible on your smartphone or whatever device, you can go there now. And we're gonna take a look at Exodus chapter 23, three short verses, 14 through 16. Now, as you're flipping there, and before we get in here, obviously Exodus, we're in the 23rd chapter. So what we're doing here when we're gonna read this is we're kind of just parachuting in on a book that has already had 22 chapters chock full of important stuff that we need to know that provides a helpful context for what we're gonna read about here in Exodus 23. So let's just zoom out real quick here. Let's give some context. So the book of Exodus, you can kind of say that the book of Exodus chronicles the story. It is a narrative about this people group, this ancient people group known as the people or the nation of Israel. Now, Israel, this nation was kind of united around their common heritage. They all came from this one guy named Abraham. And Abraham was a central figure in the book of the Bible that precedes the book of Exodus, the book of Genesis. So about 400 some odd years after Abraham walked and lived on the face of the earth, he uh, has plenty of offspring. And now there are numerous people, the people of Israel. And as we enter into Exodus chapter one, the beginning of this book, we discover that this people is in bondage and enslaved. And they are enslaved to one of the most ruthless powers that the world has ever known and their ruler and king. The nation of Egypt and their principal figure or their king or their ruler, their emperor, Pharaoh. So the people of Israel are enslaved. They know that God had made promises of protection and provision to their father, Abraham, back in Genesis. And so as they're recalling this, their, their, their condition in life is deplorable. They're subjected to harsh labor and slavery. And finally, they've had enough. They're like, where are these promises, God? God, please, they cry out to God and they say, please help us in our situation. Free us from this detestable life and the experience that we're living right now. And what Exodus 2 says is so beautiful. If you ever have a chance to read the narrative of the book of Exodus, it's phenomenal. But Exodus 2 says when the people cry out to God, it says that God heard them, that God heard them, but that God saw them as well. He saw their plight. He looked upon the things that they were going through and he had compassion. But then it says that God knew their suffering. Did you catch that? Like that God had so looked upon the suffering of the people of Israel in bondage that he felt the pain and the anguish that was associated with that condition of slavery. And so God acts in a mighty way, in a supernatural and powerful and rather swift way. He liberates the people from Egypt. He gets them out of Egypt. And then 50 days after that monumental event, which is called the Exodus, which is where this book gets its name. After that monumental event, the people come out of Egypt. 50 days later, God brings them to the, to the foot of a mountain known as Mount Sinai. And there at the foot of that mountain, God descends on that mountain and he begins to give the people of Israel a law code. He begins to give them some commandments and he starts to list a lot of rules and regulations round about Exodus 20 or 21. And so Exodus 23, where we're plopping in right here, Exodus 23 is smack dab in the middle of a series of laws and commandments that God is giving to the people of Israel as they are encamped at the foot, as they're gathered at the foot of Mount Sinai. So in this series of commandments, this is what God says about feasts. 
He says, three times a year, Israel, you are to celebrate a festival to me. Festival is feast. It's the same idea. It's food. It's celebration. It's partying. Three times a year, you are to celebrate a festival to me. Celebrate the festival of unleavened bread. For seven days, eat bread made without yeast, as I commanded you. Do this at the appointed time in the month of Aviv, for in that month you came out of Egypt. No one is to appear before me empty-handed, right? There's this idea of feasting and fullness, isn't there? Celebrate the festival of harvest with the first fruits of the crops you sow in your field. Celebration number three, celebrate the festival of ingathering at the end of the year when you gather in your crops from the field. All right, so let's dive in here. And I think when we dive in, we're gonna look at this first verse, verse 14, because I think it could be really, we could skim by this without really understanding and pausing and seeing the gravity of what's being said here in this first verse. Notice what God says. <laughs> I love this. Three times a year, you are to celebrate a festival to me. You're to do this. And later he says, I command you to do this festival. Did you catch that? Once again, we are in the middle of God giving a series of laws, codes, and commandments to his people. Like this is how you ought to live, be obedient. One of the commandments, like literally, God commands his people to party. Did you catch that? Like, so for some of us, you're like, I'm a Jesus follower and I like to party, you know? Like, but think, think about this for a second. God commands his people to party like it's 1449, right? BC. And all God's people said, uh, that was weak. All God's people said, Amen. man, that's what I'm talking about. Because if you're like me, when you come to Old Testament laws, you're like, this is the part I skip. Or if I have the bravery and the endurance to go through a passage like this, I'm like, yeah, this is the law. This is that boring, mundane, super religious, meaningless, legalistic thing. Like it's the stuff that I really don't wanna do, but because God said I had to do it, I have to do it. Listen there, the exact opposite is true. God is commanding his people to party and to celebrate something that he has done. And they celebrate he says, he commands them. He's like, I want you to celebrate in three specific and unique and complementary ways. And I think when we start to dig in here to the festival of unleavened bread, the festival of harvest and the festival of gathering, we are going to see a past, a present and a future aspect in each of these feasts. Again, with our sort of sticky statement that feasting is about God's faithfulness in the past and the present and the future. I think we're gonna to start to see this as we unpack these feasts a little bit. So the question is now, how does God want us to party? What does he want us to do? Because we're commanded to party, right? So verse 15, celebrate the festival of unleavened bread. For seven days, eat bread made without yeast as I commanded you. Do this at the appointed time in the month of Aviv. All right. Everyone turn to your neighbor and say, Aviv, okay? Everyone turn to your other neighbor and say, that's meaningless, you don't need to know anything about that. Okay, all right, good. Hey, some of you actually did that, that was great. Okay, so <laughs> do this at the appointed time in the month of Aviv, for in that month you came out of Egypt. And he says, no one is to appear before me empty-handed. So you're like, all right, you're supposed to celebrate the feast of, or the festival of unleavened bread. What is this about? Well, as we kind of see here, the festival of unleavened bread was commanded by God for the people of Israel to observe every year at the same time. And they were to, like you see here, they were to celebrate this festival for seven days, like a full week of partying and celebration. But they were to do that by eating bread made without yeast. And you're like, what's the deal with that? Why would God command that specific thing? 
Well, see, what you need to know, and again, we're parachuting in here to Exodus chapter 20, 23. We have to go back to this story, right? This Exodus story that we just articulated a, a few moments ago. See, the festival of unleavened bread was intimately connected with another event that was monumental in the history of the people of Israel. It was an event that occurred exactly 50 days prior to them being encamped on this mountain. And it is this event known as the Passover. Anybody ever heard of the Passover, right? Yeah, because there are Jewish, uh, many of Jewish people still celebrate the Passover as a part of their worship and their religious system today, right? And so here's what you need to know. Like the, the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread were so intimately connected, so much so that the feast itself was pretty much to commemorate in an extended way that event of the Passover. The Passover was the first day of the feast. It was like the kickoff to that week-long celebration. Now the Passover, you guys gotta get this. This is so important. The Passover was the foundational and constitutive moment in the history of Israel as a people. It was so formative to them. So in the Passover, again, the, the original Passover had occurred 50 days prior to God giving this commandment. And this Passover was God liberating the people and getting them out of enslavement to Egypt. And this is how God did this. This is how God secured this freedom and this liberation for the people. God had said, and this is, you can read this back in Exodus 12. God had said that he was going to send an angel of judgment or an angel of death. And that that angel of death was going to go throughout the towns and the villages and the land of Egypt. And this angel of death or this angel of judgment was going to slaughter every firstborn son in the land. Every firstborn son. But God, in his faithfulness to his promises that he made to their forefather Abraham, God told the people of Israel, this is how your sons can be spared. God said that if you take a lamb without blemish or defect, meaning like the best of the flock, the best and the brightest, if you take that lamb and you bring it into your house and you slaughter that lamb in the place of your son, your firstborn son, as a substitute for your son, you slaughter that lamb and you take the blood and you put the blood on the doorpost, the two door, doorposts of your house and on the lintel, that horizontal beam above, if you do that, the angel of death, when it comes through the land of Egypt, will pass over. This is where they get the name. They will, it will pass over the houses of the Israelites. And so we have this constitutive faithful moment where God provides liberation, but he also provides a way out by substituting a lamb to sacrifice and die in the place of the firstborn sons so that they could go free and experience liberation. So for Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, God commanded them to celebrate this, to look back at the past, right? That God had once in a one single definitive act, a sealed past action, a completed action that is never repeatable. God had radically intervened in the nation of Israel's experience and he liberated them. The Passover is a past commemoration about God's faithfulness to liberate his people from enslavement. Passover is looking to the past. We go on in this passage here. God commands another festival. He says, celebrate the festival of harvest with the first fruits of the crops you sow in the field. 
All right, so this festival of the harvest, it did have something to do with the reaping or the harvesting of cereal or grain, like wheat and barley and all that good stuff. So in one sense, this uh, festival was to commemorate God's provision of the crops and the reaping of those crops. But you'll actually find, if you do some digging elsewhere in the Old Testament, and if you look at other ancient Jewish writings that refer to to the festival of harvest, you will discover that this festival or this feast is also known by a different name. More often than not, it's known by a different name, and that name is the name Pentecost. Pentecost. So you got Passover, and now you got Pentecost. Some of you are like, okay, what the heck, man? What the heck does Pentecost mean? What's that all about? Well, simply speaking, for the people in the Exodus 23 generation, Pentecost was a word that simply meant 50. 50. Like Keanu Reeves in Speed, like, don't go beneath 50 miles per hour. Like, 50, right? So this 50 idea was to commemorate, right? So what had happened 50 days earlier? The Passover occurred. 50 days later, God didn't just bring a people and liberate them out of Egypt to leave them to do whatever the heck they wanted. Like, okay, you're on your own now, guys. 50 days later commemorates when the people of Israel gathered at the base of Mount Sinai And the Lord himself came down in smoke and a cloud and he bound himself to the nation of Israel in a committed, loving covenant relationship. And as a part of this covenant relationship, he gave these very laws and commandments and rules and instructions so that, it, so that that relationship could kind of be regulated. In other words, Israel was to know by looking at these laws and commandments and these instructions of God, they were to know just how to function in a relationship with a God who had done something great in their past and had brought them to the foot of this mountain and was committed in the giving of these laws to instruct them on how to live life in the present, how to live differently, how to live as God's people. And so if Passover looked to the past, the festival of the harvest, Pentecost, it was a reminder of the present, that God's presence was near them, that God was willing to give them his word, his law, his instruction to help them navigate through life and to do life the way God always intended life to be done. So the festival was then a response, an annual way of commemorating and being reminded that God is with us and he's leading us and he's instructing us in the good life. Third festival, celebrate the festival of ingathering at the end of the year, when you gather in your crops from the field. So like with Pentecost, this feast, the festival of ingathering, does have to do with grape harvesting. But more often than not in the Old Testament, it is also referred to by another name. And that is the, or other names, it's either the name, the festival or the feast of tabernacles or the feast of booths. Tabernacles or booths. You're like, what the heck is this, man? So tabernacle is just a fancy ancient way of saying tent. Like a temporary structure, a temporary dwelling as opposed to or in contrast to a permanent dwelling like a house. Right? So tabernacles means tent. So this festival even gathering is also known as tabernacles or booths, temporary structures. Now this festival was actually celebrated. It was again a week-long festival. And the people of Israel, they were literally supposed to dwell in tents for an entire week. And some of you really manly dudes out there who have like wrestled a bear, you're like, I wanna know when this festival is, right? Because it is a week long of camping. 
right? I'm gonna get my buddies and just go camping, right? But why were they supposed to take a week and, and to do what? I mean, to live in these temporary dwellings, to live in these tents, what was that all about? Well, actually, you come to discover that if you read on from Exodus 23 and you, you continue to chronicle uh, Israel's story, you will discover that this feast actually for the Exodus 23 generation was a future-looking thing. It commemorated or it anticipated something that had yet to happen in their story. And that was this idea that if you look at the following books of the Bible, Leviticus and Numbers, you will discover that the people of Israel, after they leave Mount Sinai, they wander in the wilderness for 40 years before they finally take hold of the land inheritance that God had promised them and before them, their father, Abraham. So tabernacles was this idea like you're going to dwell in tents in temporary structures for 40 years. It hadn't happened to them yet, but it commemorated and it anticipated a future. So if Passover was about remembering God's faithfulness in the past, Pentecost was about being reminded of God's nearness and his presence and his law and his word and his instruction on the good life and the present. Tabernacles looked forward. And we say, well, if God's been faithful in the past, and if he's faithful to be with me through the twists and turns of life, and he's assuredly going to be faithful to get me to my inheritance, to get me to the destination of life in the land, life with him forever. Okay, so we've got Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacles. Now, if you're like me, I look at this and I start to ask a really important question, I think, uh, in light of the motivations and the purpose of the series that we're in right now, Patterns That Change Us. Right, because this series is based entirely on the premise that Jesus has given his followers certain patterns, certain spiritual habits or practices that when we incorporate these into our life and our relationship with him, we become more like Jesus. We change. They become patterns that change us. So if you're like me, I'm asking the question, well, wait, this is Israel, right? So am I supposed to celebrate these three festivals? Like, should I get on my yarmulke and do my thing, right? At Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacles? And maybe the better question in light of that is, all right, so if I'm a follower of Jesus, did Jesus and his followers in the New Testament, did they celebrate these feasts? Did they celebrate these feasts? Because if they did, does that mean I need to celebrate them? Or if they did, maybe what kind of contribution to the ideas that lie behind these festivals in the past, present, future what kind of ideas or contributions would they make to my understanding of what feasting really is as a follower of Jesus? So past, present, future, right? Did followers of Jesus celebrate these feasts? All right, let's take a quick look at each in turn. Luke 22, Jesus is speaking with his disciples and he says to them, he's having a meal with them. He says, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. You're like, right. Of course, even though he's living 1,500 years after the Exodus 23 generation, Jesus, like any good Jewish person, is going to remember God's faithfulness in the past. He's going to observe Passover. You're like, Jesus is a good Jewish person. Congratulations. What does that have anything to do with me following Jesus? Well, here, here's the thing. I think Jesus deliberately selects the Passover event to, to talk about what he's going to do here in the next coming verses and to teach his disciples and what, what he's gonna do in teaching his disciples and the meal he's gonna hand over to them is gonna turn the idea of Passover upside down and infuse it with tremendous depth and meaning. Look at what Jesus does 
on the Passover. He took bread, he gave thanks, and he broke it. And he gave it to his disciples. And he says, this is my body. This is my body, which is given for you. And then he says, around this meal, here's what I want you to do. You do this in remembrance, not of a Passover. You do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Jesus hands over to his followers a commemorative meal that has historical once for all significance. That Jesus, the next afternoon, is going to be placed up and nailed to a cross. And his body on that cross is going to be broken. And he says, it's for you so that you could go free, so that you could be liberated. His body's gonna be broken. His blood is going to be poured out. And what does Jesus do? He selects Passover, I think, strategically to show that, man, there is a liberation that we all need in our lives. And it's not a liberation from enslavement to an Egyptian pharaoh. It's a liberation to the thing that enslaves every single human being that has ever walked the face of the earth. Jesus is saying that in the same way that Passover miraculously wrested and enslaved Israel from the clutches of Egypt and Pharaoh, Jesus is saying, my death is going to be a radical and swift liberation from sin, from death, from the grave, and from the influence and the clutches of Satan. Jesus takes Passover and he infuses it with new meaning. He takes all the threads of Passover and he treats it like they're anticipating and foreshadowing his death. That he now is the sacrificial substitute not the lamb of Passover, but he dies in the place of his people so that his sons, his family can go free. They can be liberated from sin, death, and the grave. Fundamentally, Jesus takes Passover and he says, yes, in this meal, followers of Jesus, you are remembering the definitive once and for all completed act that is never repeatable at the cross. The cross, Jesus says, is what secures your liberation. And when we feast, part of it is always to be a reminder of God's faithfulness. Because where has God been shown to be the most faithful in the history of the world? Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me. It's the cross. So Jesus infuses Passover with new meaning. So what about Pentecost, right? This is the past. What about Pentecost in the present? Did Jesus' followers... Or did Jesus celebrate Pentecost? Well, if you read Jesus' story, he dies, he rises again, and later he ascends into heaven where he is installed as rightful Lord over the whole world with all power and authority and might and dominion. But before he ascends into heaven, he tells his followers, he gathers them around, and he says, listen, here's what I want you to do. I want you to stay in the city of Jerusalem for a little while, right? Until you are clothed with power from on high. And so Jesus says, I'm gonna go, but I'm not gonna leave you guys as orphans. I am going to send to you a, tra a power that is going to affect your transformation to look more and more like me. I'm gonna give you a power to be transformed and new people. And I'm also going to give you this power to be a bold witness to my story and my forgiveness of sins that's offered at the cross. Jesus promises the gift 
of the Holy Spirit, the gift that indwells followers of Jesus with God's faithfulness, with his presence, and helps transform us into the likeness of Jesus. And so Jesus says he's gonna send this. Now check this out. In Acts 2, this is where the Spirit comes. What does he say? What does Luke say when he's writing? When the day of Pentecost. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Now check this out. Jesus' disciples are gathered or assembled into one place. This is the same language. If you're a Jewish person, you're thinking of the gathered people of Israel at the base of Mount Sinai, ready to hear God's instruction on how to do life, ready to receive adoption as sons and daughters into his family, and ready to have the nearness of God's presence with us moment by moment as we carry out our lives. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. This again is supposed to remind you of the, the fire and the cloud and the smoke and all the stuff that happened at Mount Sinai when God gave the law and bound himself to Israel in relationship. But what happens here? Well, it's a new Pentecost. It's the Pente kind of Pentecost that the existing Israelite Pentecost always pointed forward to. All of these disciples were what? Man, they were filled to the brim. Filled to the brim with God's presence, with the reality of his love for us, with the confidence and the expectation that God is near us and he can help us navigate the twists and the turns of this present life. That not only do we have God's instruction in his word like the people of Israel had back in Exodus 23, but we now also have the transformative power in our lives to respond to God's word obediently and become more and more like Jesus as we walk through this life. Man, all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit. The past is the commemoration when we feast. We do it to remember God's once and for all act in the past at the cross, his faithfulness, but we also do it to remind ourselves of God's faithfulness to be with us as we face the challenges of our day to day. He's with us because of the Holy Spirit. And then finally, tabernacles. I love the way that the Apostle Paul, who is one of Jesus's followers, and he wrote a book. It's, it's 2 Corinthians in our Bible. And in 2 Corinthians 5, uh, Paul is talking about, he's contrasting the present earthly bodies that we have. Okay, so these bodies are susceptible to decay, right? They're just susceptible to death and, and destruction. And he's contrasting these present bodies with a future resurrection body that followers of Jesus will inherit. And this resurrection body isn't going to be susceptible to death and decay anymore. Sin can't touch it. It's gonna signify full-blown life with God forever in all eternity. And so as Paul is comparing and contrasting the earthly body with that future heavenly resurrection body, this is what he says to the Christ followers in Corinth. He says, for we know that if the earthly tent, temporary structure, we live in is destroyed. He's talking about the present bodies that are susceptible to decay and death. We have a building though, we know Sometime in the future, we have a building from God, an eternal house, permanent structure, right? In heaven, not built by human hands. Meanwhile, in this present time, we groan. Why? Well, because we just long to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling, with our resurrection, with full life and eternity and rest, the ultimate eternal inheritance where we have life with God forever. I find it fascinating, and I just don't think it's coincidental that when Paul says, for we know that if the earthly, he uses this word tent, <laughs> man, behind this word in the original language, it is the exact same language that is used in the Old Testament for tabernacle or booth. 
You see it? That in the same way God was faithful to lead the people of Israel through 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, and he was faithful to get them to their destination so that because of the Spirit, because of the cross of Jesus and the Spirit at work in our lives, God is going to be faithful to bring followers of Jesus into the future rest, <laughs> into the future resurrection. Like we are God's people and we will live with him forever, for all eternity, without the pains that come from the decay and death caused by sin in this world and in this life. Jesus shows us that Israel's story pointed forward to a bigger story, to the great and epic story that God has been writing throughout the history of the world, a story that you and I have access to. It is the story of salvation. And check this out. The story of salvation is made real and tangible and is infused in us in a powerful way when we decide to party when we decide to feast, knowing the why, seeing that feasting is the celebration of God's faithfulness, past, present, and future, in the lives of followers of Jesus as they remember the past, are reminded of the present, and anticipate the future. And when we feast followers of Jesus, this is why. We don't just feast for no reason or to fill our bellies. We feast because it is symbolic. Our, our filled bellies are symbolic of the fact that God has filled us with every good and perfect thing, has authored, us, uh, has authored in us the story of salvation and will bring us faithfully to life with him forever. That is why we feast. That's why we feast. All right, so we know the why. Now the when. So when do we feast? When are the appropriate occasions for feasting in a Christ follower's life? Do we need to do it annually like tabernacles, Pentecost, and Passover? Does it need to be that like repetitious? Well, I think we could say a couple things with the principle of feasting behind everything that we're talking about. When do we feast? I would probably say this. For followers of Jesus, there is just a very simple answer to that question. Jesus gave us a meal. And he said in this meal, when we, when we drink the cup, when we partake of the bread of communion, Jesus said that we are doing this in remembrance of him. We are recollecting in this communion act the story of God's faithfulness to send Jesus to liberate us from sin and death, to be the sacrificial substitute so that we could go free. He takes the hit of sin so that we might go free. Communion is the natural space, not just to treat it as a religious ritual, but as often as we do communion, we are to be reminded, we are to remember. And here at Grace Church, we practice something called threefold communion. And in threefold communion, we actually have three components, right? So we have the bread and the cup, we have foot washing, and we also have something called the love feast, which is like this big celebratory meal. And each of these, while we don't have time to go into its significance, each of these corresponds to the past, the present, and the future commemoration of God's faithfulness. The bread and the cup remembers the past at the cross. God's great liberation of our lives from sin and death. The foot washing reminds us that even though we still have lingering sin and struggle in our lives, God is faithful to forgive us and to provide us his spirit, to be cleansed from all unrighteousness. 
And then we have the love feast, which points forward. It anticipates something that we read of in Revelation 19, that when we experience life with God forever, when Jesus returns in those resurrection bodies, when we come into that rest, Revelation 19 talks about a great banquet, that we will dine with feast with Jesus forever and all eternity. So communion threefold is the natural place to feast. Now here at Grace, we often do communion in life groups, life groups. So if you're not in a life group, this is a great opportunity if you're a follower of Jesus. Another reason to check out a life group and to get involved because you get a chance with other followers of Jesus who are celebrating the same story of salvation. You get to do that together and remember, remind, and anticipate. So when do we feast? Communion. But I would also say there's another environment that I think is helpful. I would say this. We feast when God's grace becomes tangible and evident, not just in the big story of salvation that God's writing, but in our lives and in our stories. You see, to follow Jesus is to claim that we have a heritage that now lands in our own lives and our own circumstances, right? In the same way that we have a past, present, and future in Israel's story that points forward to the greater past, present, and future in Jesus' story, so Jesus' story now, now begins to show up in the narrative arc of our own lives and our experience so that we can feast when we recognize that God has done something in our lives and in our story. When he has, in the past, rescued us from some calamity or disaster. When we said in the past, man, there's no way out of this. There's just no way out of this. And Jesus, by his spirit, showed up and liberated you from that circumstance. When he rescued you from trouble, what do you do? You get out the grill. You get out the grill. You call a bunch of people and you say, come on over. We're gonna feast and we're gonna remember the great thing that God did in my story. That's what we're gonna do. When God and his spirit gives you guidance and wisdom, in your present experience, like the thing that you're up against right now, when God gives you an infusion of clarity and wisdom and guidance, when you are filled with the reality of his presence in your life, you feast, get out the grill, turn on the oven, go to Chili's, gather and talk about, declare the goodness and the grace of God that has filled your life and your story. And lastly, if you have ever been in just radically and suddenly infused with an eruption of confidence, God's going to get me there. <laughs> you, you know, I, I've got major things that are going on in my story right now. I don't know what the future holds, but regardless of what the future holds, I've just been randomly and strikingly infused with the confidence. It doesn't even matter what comes my way. God's got it. He's been faithful. He's faithful at the cross. He's been faithful in my present experience. Come what may, Jesus reigns. Come what may. What do you do? Go to Chili's? <laughs> I don't know. Like, what are the restaurants do you guys want to talk about? Like, Longhorn? I don't know. You feast. You feast. So when do we feast? Right? We feast in communion, and we feast when God's operative in our story. And we see that, and we know it, and we want to remember, remind, and anticipate. Lastly, practical considerations. So when we feast, how do we do it? How do we do it well? Well, I would say this, a couple, couple different things. You feast with other people, okay? So feasting is not about you getting a bucket of ice cream and doing your best impersonation of Fat Thor in the Avengers, if you've seen that, right? 
So it's not about that. It's not about like watching copious amounts of reruns of Friends and just like celebrating, oh gosh, I made it through the day. Like, no, that's not, that's not feasting. That's gluttony, okay? In case you were wondering, like that's gluttony. And, and I think actually, I think gluttony is a distortion. Like it, it's a cheap counterfeit to true feasting, isn't it? Because gluttony is overindulgence on myself and my needs. Feasting is a recognition that without God, I'm empty, but that God in my life and in the story of salvation has filled me with every good and perfect thing, and he's faithful. So how do we feast? We feast with other people. It's a communal and a corporate thing. And first and foremost, I would say, if you're a follower of Jesus and you're ready to feast, you gotta go call up other followers of Jesus, right? Because if you're a follower of Jesus, you are in your story declaring the big story of salvation that God is writing throughout history. And there are other brothers and sisters, people that are a part of that same family of God that are telling the same story in their own lives. And when you get together, there's a dynamic that you just can't imagine. Like we party, we can party and celebrate God's faithfulness together. Now I would also say this, if you're a Christ follower and you're ready to feast, God showed up in your story, man, invite Christ, other Christ followers. But I would also say that it is a tremendous measure of hospitality to, to invite those that you know that don't follow Jesus. Why? Because again, if you're declaring the great story of Jesus and God's faithfulness in your own story, and you're calling attention to that in, in praise and in worship of God when you tell that story, man, that is an incredible measure of hospitality, inviting other people into the family. Right? And if you are not a follower of Jesus and you have been invited to a feast like this, man, you, you don't even know what's coming. I'm just telling you. Like, if you're not a follower of Jesus, I would though, I would challenge you. Because it's one thing to know why, but it is an entirely different matter to actually experience it in action. So if you're a follower of Jesus, do yourself a favor. If you've been invited to a feast, go. I guarantee you, you won't, you won't regret it. All right, so how do we feast? We feast with others. As part of feasting with others, I think we have to consider family, right? So those, of, those who are like biologically or adopted, adoptedly related to us, right? So like our kids or our, our relatives or our parents or whatever with family. And what do we do there? Well, the principle of feasting, because we're filled with God and the food is merely a commemoration of that fact. Man, what we're doing is we just get a chance as a family to openly share about God's faithfulness in our story together. And the your story is a plural thing. Not just me telling my kids how great God is in my life, but me with my kids and my wife or my family getting together and thinking about us as a corporate family unit. How has God been faithful in our past? Where has he pulled us as a family from? Celebrate his faithfulness. Call attention to it. What is God doing in our family right now around this meal? And then maybe... Just maybe we can ask God, what are, what are the dreams that you have for our family? Where are we going, God? Where are you taking us? We wanna be faithful in that you have been faithful to us in our story. So you feast with your family. And now I would, I would say this too. I know that it's really difficult for families to get together to share a meal. I know we live in a busy society and culture and there's always something knocking at our proverbial door and taking us away from that. But I would just ask that maybe, just maybe, if you could as a family carve out one meal a week, one meal a week where you deliberately engage in this feasting idea, where you ask these questions of each other and you celebrate God's faithfulness in your family's story. Just one meal a week. And listen, I just wanna tell you, this idea is like feasting 
is not merely about the food. So if you're worried about like, well, I gotta cook this gourmet meal or something like that. No, 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 just have some sort of edible item around, right? As you do this, you can have mac and cheese. It's totally fine. It can be boxed Kraft macaroni and cheese. You can also get it from Aldi. I don't care, but just like some sort of meal, right? So I love what uh, David Mathis says about this, what he says about feasting and family. He says, feasting is not first about the food. It is foremost about the Godward celebration of some specific occasion together. Good food and drink in abundance come in alongside our corporate focus. I love this word, to accentuate the appreciation and enjoyment of God and his kindness. Check this out. The heart of feasting is not the food itself. It's the heart of the feasters. A true feast is bigger than the food, infinitely bigger. The center is God and his greatness and his grace toward us in Christ. If you're a family, you ought to feast. Maybe one meal a week to devote to this practice. And then finally, I would say with others includes feasting in a life group. I know I mentioned life groups a moment ago, but we say it a lot. If you're not in a life group, man, you gotta get in a life group. Because literally life groups is a weekly environment where we do exactly this. Like life group, if you think about it, the average life group experience is a feast, right? Because we come around God's word together in community. We learn about God's faithfulness in the past as we read it in the pages of scripture. We are challenged by each other and by God's word on how we can live faithfully in the present toward a God who loved us and is with us by his Holy Spirit. And we are also challenged by that same group of people to look forward in the next day, week, month, etc., as to where God might lead us, right, in life. And so, and, and we do all of that, by the way, around food, snacks, life group snacks. For those of you who are in life group, you know what I'm talking about, life group snacks. Now, this is, this is my favorite quote from Pastor Tony, by the way, I love this. He says, this is the reason that it is actually theologically important that you have really good snacks at life group. <laughs> That's the reason why you have good snacks at life group. But again, the bottom line is, you're gathering around other followers of Jesus, remembering reminding and anticipating. We do that every week at Life Group. So if you're not in Life Group, man, check out a Life Group. Check out a Life Group. Bottom line, wrapping it all up, man, God has given us this amazing practice in feasting to not just be distracted by the empty stomach and filling it copiously with food, but to use the food as a reminder and the filling that it brings as a reminder of the filling of God's faithfulness in our lives and our experiences, that because of Jesus Christ on the cross, because of his spirit who leads us and guide us, guides us, and because of his commitment to get us to life with him forever, he is good and he is worth celebrating. All right, let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you for this tremendous gift that you've given us, Jesus. We recognize afresh that uh, what you did on that one Passover night when you kind of reinvented that, man, you were, you were showing us a pattern that we have access to that's at our disposal. That when you did what you did, you commemorated it with a meal that you handed over to us. So we recognize, Jesus, that this is something that you, you, you've given to us and it's a joy and it's a privilege to have access to this amazing catalyst that can help us love you more and that can help us just grow more confident in the work that you are doing and you will do in every one of our lives. God, help us as we are each challenged on how we might take a first step to embrace this practice of feasting in our families, with our life group, in some other environment, whatever it may be. God, continue to just challenge us toward that first step. Make it super clear to us what we ought to do to embrace this, recognizing that again, we are not filled just by bread alone. We're not filled by the stuff that we eat in the physical, 
But Jesus, because you're good, we can genuinely commemorate the fact that we feast on you for everything that we need in life. Thank you again, God, for this act of feasting. God, I even ask now that as we sing and as we worship together, that this would in some ways be a feast, that we would respond to your goodness as we're reminded of it one more time and sing praise and glory and honor to you because you are faithful. Thank you, Jesus, for your faithfulness. And we pray this in your name, amen.